on his way. Devil is on his way. Devil is on his way, motherfucker. The devil gonna make you pay. Fall to your knees. Devil is on his way. Fall to your knees. Devil gonna make you pay. Mountain Murders is an Appalachian true crime podcast. Listener discretion is advised. The show contains graphic language and depictions of violence. It may not be suitable for all audiences. We say fuck a lot. I don't know what that means. I don't watch Dragon Ball Z. It's when you're just emanating power right now and you're you're like your shoulders are getting all chunky and muscly and it's scary. You're a super saiyan. Can we open with that? Because I'm trying to get you to focus so we can record. Yeah, well that, and I um, feel like I've already affected your day. We can talk about how you, how stupid I am. I'm already recording this, so. Are you, oh, so this is our opening? Yeah. Okay, so there it is. Hey, hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan. Yeah, today Dylan is a douchebag. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, so um, <laughs> if, really. you, if you heard all that, then um, I have postponed our day, and the very thing... Let's that- be honest, you hijack <laughs> all of our days. Well, okay, here's what happens is I'm slow to get up sometimes. Uh, 98% of the time. To crawl out of our love nest. Dylan would sleep like 16 to 18 hours a day if you allowed him to do so. Oh my gosh, I can't believe uh, that, that people get a real look at what um, I'm, I'm afraid right now. Because she said, if you don't get a move on, it's gonna rain, I wanna go walking, and it's raining now. And we didn't get to go walking yet, so... Yeah, okay, so here's the deal. I get up, <laughs> I'm up earlier, I do some things in the house, get my shower in, hang out. I tried to wake him up like three or four different times, like every hour. And Oh, I'm getting up right now, I'm getting up right now. Then it's fucking 12 o'clock, and I finally was like, if you don't get your ass up, I'm leaving. I'm going to go on a walk. I'm going to leave you here. No, 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 I want to go. So then you spring up, spring into action. It's yeah. funny how you can quickly do that, right? Yeah, because I know you'll leave, and I'll, I'll be here for half the day by myself, and you'll be out doing stuff. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Because she's not fucking around. So then he's like, oh, well, you know, we have a couple errands to run. And then by the time we're finished with those few errands, of course, it starts raining and I don't get my afternoon walk in. Yet. But we're going to walk. And this is every day that Dylan is home and I make plans. Hey, let's go to the lake and go swimming. And then at like four o'clock, he's ready to go. Yeah. Oh, God. There comes the afternoon thunderstorms. Didn't see that coming. Well, you know, if you didn't sleep all damn day. Okay, so now to take our minds off of what Dylan may or may not have done. I feel like James McAvoy in that movie Split. Oh, okay. When he turns into the beast? Yeah. That's how you make me feel. Was it, That's what I was talking about earlier when you turn into a Super Saiyan. You're like evolving and your yeah, power is... I don't is... know anything about... What was it called? Dragon Ball Z? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. Well, you watch an episode and you'll be like, that's, that's how I feel. Well, I'm a grown-up, so no. Oh, okay. okay. Well, that, that's adult animation. <laughs> so moving along, I hate here we are. Animation. I hate anime. Here we are in the Mountain Murder Studio, feeling great, feeling wonderful. I feel well rested, honestly. I bet you do. <laughs> yeah. You should. Yes. You slept like eighteen hours and like. 24 hours, so you should feel great. <laughs> and the research beast, known as Heather Hyatt Packer, has uh, been digging through a lot of stories and... Hey, don't give them my real name. I'm wanted, okay? Oh, shit. I have outstanding warrants in some other states. Oh, is that true? 
Yeah. Oh, my God. So, okay. Uh, the things you learn when you're podcasting. Maybe you should have asked me that, but you never asked me that before we got married. Well, I didn't feel it was necessary, but now that I think about it, I probably should have. You should have. Made sure that he hadn't done any violent crimes in other or other jurisdictions. Well, you never really <laughs> asked me what I did in my 20s. Well, you know, I think it, what happens in your 20s should stay in your 20s. So, you know, it's kind of like Vegas. Okay. Yeah, so um, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Lauren. She topped out at our highest level this week on Patreon. So thank you, Lauren. This episode is dedicated to you. Yes, thank you, Lauren. For your awesome support. Join us on Patreon. We release new content every week. We have rearranged our Patreon tiers. Um, so the level of support, I mean, you can do a, a very small amount or top out at our highest amount, but you're going to get all this extra content. We just dropped part one of a two-part series on Appalachian mobsters and organized crime, which is pretty interesting. Yes, and I, I try to do my part and read some of it, so our patrons have to suffer through that. I'm trying to get better. I, people don't know what he's, he's talking about. Well, yeah, sometimes on Patreon, she lets me lead an episode, I research it, and then I try to uh, uh, deliver it to the people, and I am not Heather. That's all I can say about it. Okay. Well, we dropped episode 91 earlier this week. It was our collaboration with Dreadfully Curious, so go check that out. We also got a wild hair, decided to drop episode 92 on Mamie Thurman. So if you haven't listened to those, make sure you get those downloaded and check them out. Yeah. So what do you have for us today? Oh, man, we have a doozy of a case today, and we're going to spend some time going through the background details of this crime, because I think it's so relevant to the crime itself. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's very important. You always do a good job of uh, the backstories of, you know, the people and such, but I think in this case it is very important to get all a bit, uh, get the whole picture in your head of, you know, before you get to the crime. Well, in episode 90, the Bader family killing, we talked about a terrible divorce situation. And I think we all know people, or maybe you've been unfortunate enough to have experienced it personally, but I think we all know people who have gone through a really terrible divorce situation or a bad breakup, and they have extreme, con like, extremely contentious custody battles. Oh my God, I personally went through a rather bad one myself. And so I could only imagine, um, well, I can imagine exactly how emotionally distraught you get is such a big deal. And then, you know, arguing with your ex and then you got the kids are involved. It's just, it's an emotional mess. It really is hard on the entire family. It really is. And I think once we get into discussing this story, at least for me personally, I noted many traits um, of our our main character in this story. Um, I mean, she's essentially a sociopath. And I, I've noticed that in a lot of the bad breakups, bad custody situations that I've witnessed uh, with friends and family, that kind of thing, that the um, antagonist in those situations, the parent who's fighting the hardest and being the most difficult, tend to have some of the same traits. Yeah, I think, is, I think you could definitely um, pinpoint when you know just the amateurs like we are, but when you know some of these traits to look for and what that means, there's definitely, I think, every time some kind of personality um, disorder 
or maybe a full-blown sociopath like this case. I think you're dead on with this. Well, I did some diving into some reasons that sociopaths fight for child custody. And this is what I discovered in my research. One is that he or she sometimes is enraged by the thought that you, and we're going to use a second person here, that you or the court could take away his or her possessions, which they think of as you and the children. So they just want full control over everything in their atmosphere, in their environment. Yeah, they almost like don't even see the children as people. They see them as an extension of themselves rather than individual people. And so they feel like they have ownership over those kids because it's an extension of me. So I control it. I own it. Okay. And tragically, if you're on the receiving end of this, there's not a whole lot you can do about what he or she feels or doesn't feel concerning you and the children. I mean, you have to be able to protect your future, their future, but you're going to have to accept a sad truth that this person is probably unfixable. <laughs> They're probably broken. There's not much that you're going to be able to do. So you just have to ride it out. Well, I mean, honestly, I'm not even being funny. It's like you're it's like dealing with a toddler. When, when you see people trying to reason with uh, toddlers before they actually have reasoning skills, before the age of five to seven, when they actually get it, I mean, you're not, you can't do it. You cannot reason with an unreasonable person who, for whatever reason, refuses to, you know, just try to work things out. It's, it's impossible. And the second reason that sociopaths often fight for custody is that he or she is constantly and intolerably bored. Oh, And I've seen this before in people. And this ever-present boredom creates this huge need for stimulation, entertainment, which often results in some sort of drama. Oh, so they, they... They're addicted to the drama. And in this situation, you're the entertainment. So they're using the children's vulnerability to make you jump. And each time you show anger or fear, you are stimulating them, you're entertaining them, and you're making them feel powerful and in control. So anytime that you react to what they're doing, it's just feeding this control monster they have. Yeah, no, what's scary about that situation is if you don't react, that enrages, you know, that makes them come at you and it enrages them if you try to ignore it and just you know i'm not going to be part of this that makes them mad as well so really you're in a no-win situation with a person like this you are but from what i've seen you know having seen friends kind of go through the situation and relatives is that if you kind of put up that impenetrable front of like i'm really just not going to engage period it may take some time but eventually that other person is going to move on because they need that constant drama. So they're going to find some other way to focus their energy. Well, that's a good point. And, and that's the only way out of this situation is what you just described. So all of this is relative to our true crime story today. So I hope you're still with us, folks. Jessica and Alan um, were a couple that um, met when they were in high school they had a very bitter divorce some years later, an even more contentious battle over their two daughters when it came to custody. Now, Jessica and Alan Bates had both remarried after their divorce. Jessica met a police officer while she was working as a secretary for a police department. Alan married a co-worker. So by all accounts, these people should have been able to move on. The divorce is done. They've both found new relationships, new love leading separate lives. I mean, at this point, right, they, they should have been able to, to just live. 
Well, yeah, that's definitely a sign that it's, you know, it's time for you guys to move on. When you have new partners, you know, some time has went by, then, yeah, I mean, that's the only way you can should do it. However, amicable ground was hard to find between these two. For seven years following the divorce, Jessica repeatedly exercised parental alienation techniques, anything to deny Alan's relationship with his girls. From moving residences frequently to changing her phone number every couple of months. Anything she could do to cut off contact between Alan and his daughters. Yeah, and all she's doing is harming the children with that. But some people just can't seem to help themselves. Finally, when Alan had enough, he flew to Birmingham, Alabama from Maryland where he was living. And this is in February of 2002 to hammer out a new custody agreement in front of a lawyer. And this was the beginning of the end. Alan Bates was born January 22nd, 1972, and he had what most of us would describe as a wholesome childhood. He grew up with two brothers, loving parents, and was raised in church. Those who knew Alan growing up said he was handsome, outgoing, and popular. He was active in performing arts and band during his high school career, and he was on a path to college. He dreamed of working behind the scenes in the theater world. Now, the summer before his senior year of high school, he attended Shades Valley High. He met a girl named Jessica Callis, and Jessica didn't attend Allen's high school. Like, she went to a different high school in the county. And Jessica and Allen couldn't have been more opposite. But they say opposites attract, right, Dylan? That's what Paula Abdul in that cartoon cat said. I mean, we couldn't be any more opposite. Oh, I don't... Oh, okay. You know, like, I get up and get motivated, and you don't? Yeah, you're attracted to me like a magnet. Oh, God. Well, Jessica didn't have a great home life. Her parents were divorced, and her father was incredibly abusive, uh, by most reports, um, specifically toward Jessica's mother, his ex-wife. And her dad used the kids as a pawn against his ex. Jessica grew up being in the middle of serious dysfunction. Oh, well, that's These games between mom and dad. Yes, could be a learned behavior. And as a teenager, she lashed out. She was rebellious, very promiscuous teenager, often joking that the last four digits of her phone number spelled boys. She used her sexuality for manipulation, and she was also a heavy drug user. She told a counselor that she'd used LSD somewhere between five and 600 times as a teenager. And I don't know anything about LSD, but that seems like a fucking lot. That does seem like a lot. Uh, especially in, you know, a short amount of time, you know, maybe if you said that over your life, I don't know what the healthy amount of D- LSD is, but... Um, I'm going to say probably zero. Yeah, zero may be the number, but um, yeah, that definitely sounds like a lot, and it sounds like she had, they truly are opposites, Alan and Jessica, because, she, you know, he has a stable home, loving, you know, supportive, it sounds like, and she's in the, you know, complete opposite, a broken home, Watched her parents fight back and forth over her. I mean, that's a, you can learn to manipulate from growing up in the environment like that. So that's not good. Jessica was smart, but again, she was manipulative. And those who knew her said Jessica would bring up these stories about her childhood, like horrific stories. And when you met her and she would tell you these things, you initially would think like, this poor girl, like she's had the worst life ever. But after a while... People would say that it seemed as though it was fabrications. Yeah, well, maybe she likes to get pity from people. I guess you just never know on that. It sounds like she did go through some stuff, but even if you went through the stuff to constantly bring it up and relive it 
and want to tell everybody, even people you barely know about it, that says something about your character. And she did the same with Alan, and he felt sorry for her because this was unlike anything that he had ever experienced. Jessica didn't run with the popular kids and typically turned her nose up at their kind, but when she met Alan, this changed. Jessica saw in Alan everything she wasn't. Alan was interested in kind of having this short-term fling with Jessica. It was the summer before his senior year. He was going to have a lot of plans, you know, for the upcoming year he was graduating. It was his last year of high school. You know, there were all these things that he wanted to do before going to college, so he wasn't really interested in having any kind of long-term relationship with her. And the couple had sex a few times, but again, he wasn't really pursuing Jessica as a girlfriend beyond the summer, but Jessica's plans were much different. Well, yeah, I mean, he's young. I think that's what youth is for, trying different things, meeting new people, kind of keeping yourself more, you know, open to possibilities and spontaneity, which is something that kind of goes away as you get older. So, yeah, I think he was uh, just living his life best way he could. And by the time the pair had started high school again, Jessica transferred to Shades Valley, and she immediately became pregnant. Well, there you go. That's a complication off the bat. Alan, hoping to do the right thing, decided he should marry Jessica and raise the baby in a good home. Now, he had been class president for three years, but much to everyone's dismay, he didn't run for class president in his senior year. Yeah, so it's already changing his plans, his goals, or which is, I mean, that's what happens. Jessica wanted to keep the baby despite having um, had multiple abortions as a teenager. She reportedly had five abortions before this baby, and for whatever reason was insistent she was keeping this one. <laughs> I don't know what the healthy amount of abortions are, but that's very dangerous for the woman to go through that many procedures, isn't it? People were really shocked, especially Alan's family, who described Jessica as radiating negative energy. I mean, Jessica wasn't particularly likable. She was moody. She didn't have a friendly personality. And she seemed to be into Alan for what most people thought was what Alan could do for her. I mean, it seemed like Alan was a ticket out of her life. Alan's brother said there's a whole package that he brought to her, but there was nothing really spectacular about Jessica. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes family feels like that, but um, she doesn't, She, I mean, they're so different. You know, if you're used to your brother who's outgoing, doing all these things, and then he gets with someone who seems to be his polar opposite, and they're kind of dour, is that, a, is that a word? Yeah. And just, you know, always sapping the happiness out of a situation. I've known people, maybe she's a psychic vampire. Oh, she's something. Well, though Alan's life changed pretty drastically, everyone says he embraced fatherhood. At 17, I mean, overnight, he went from being a popular high school kid to being husband and father. And immediately, Jessica began using the baby as a control mechanism. She had fights with her mother and stepfather, withholding the baby as a way to be in charge. And while they lived with Alan's family during the baby's first months, everything, it just all started to unravel. Upon graduation from high school, Alan attended the University of Montevallo, which is about 35 miles south of Birmingham. Jessica was thrilled to be living in their own place and being able to get Alan away from his family. I mean, people who knew the couple stated repeatedly that Jessica didn't like Alan being close with anyone but her. Well, yeah, that sounds like an abusive relationship. 
He worked odd jobs, construction, whatever to make ends meet. Alan's father had helped the young couple buy a house and it wasn't anything fancy. I mean, it was definitely like a little tiny fixer-upper house, but it was his contribution to help while Alan was in college that, you know, his daughter-in-law and this baby would have a, a comfortable place to live. And while Alan still wanted to pursue music and get back into playing in a gospel band, Jessica argued about groupies and women. I mean, her insecurities were bubbling. She accused Alan of cheating. He wasn't allowed to have any female friends, and she would fly into rages. I mean, it became chronic paranoia. Yeah, the, I mean, the gospel band circuit, I mean, there's so many books and movies been wrote, written about how wild and crazy that is, right? You'd be surprised. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and God. Let's go ahead and pause right now, Dylan, for a quick message from our sponsors. You can go from I should start a podcast to actually starting a podcast with Spreaker. Spreaker's tools allow you to record, manage, distribute, and monetize any podcast idea, whether it's about your business or even your cat. And as your podcast grows, Spreaker helps you manage your success and even monetize it. That means all you need to get started is a microphone and a really good idea. Learn more and get 30% off at Spreaker.com slash get started. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R dot com slash get started. There was one instance where Jessica showed up with the baby on campus during a theatrical production, and she accused Alan of outlandish sexual stuff with the women in the theater program. Well, that's got to be an embarrassing, uh, very embarrassing for Alan. And for anyone who knows what it's like to be a theater student or be in a theater program, you're in class all day doing, you know, normal classwork for that program. But then if you have productions, you're there in the evenings, the technical side of it, you've got the actors, run-throughs, you know, all of these things happening. So a theater is a really busy major it's not the kind of thing where you just go to class maybe have a little homework and then you have free time I mean when you're involved in theater it's really like your life you live and breathe it well yeah it sounds like there's a lot to do sounds kind of like a labor of love you can't fake your way through it you gotta it's hands-on a lot of extra things to do behind the scenes a lot of preparation so yeah that makes sense and Alan was gone quite a bit but you know he's really trying to balance school being involved in these productions in the evenings and then also working, you know, two, sometimes three jobs. And people who knew Alan said he literally, like, never slept. He would take, like, a 20-minute nap, like, once a day. Like, he just worked his ass off. And Jessica just didn't like it. I mean, he was gone all the time, so she automatically assumed he was out, you know, doing something terrible. And this really embarrassed Alan when she showed up with the baby, caused this huge scene. And by 1992, Jessica had given birth to their second child, those who knew Jessica said she'd really settled into being a stay-at-home mom. And though she was a good mother, people said she did have a tendency to just kind of sit around watching soap operas and such while Alan was working his ass off. And now this could be completely misogynistic because we all know that mom work and housework is hard work. But it does seem to be a little bit more than just that. Yeah, so um, yeah, it is hard work and it's a 24-hour-a-day job. You never get a day off. But um, I guess if you, there's also different levels of keeping a house and the ch children up. You, we've all seen different types of people. Some people, it's you know the house is meticulous. Children, there are all kinds of activities. They're going to the park, you know, doing everything they can to keep the children entertained. And then you got the kind of person who does the bare minimum to get through the day. So it sounds like she may be one of those people. 
Jessica put off getting her GED, and she wasn't really making any headway for her own future. Alan's friends who grew up with him were cut off. He had a female friend, um, you know, that he had grown up with, and they'd been best friends in high school. And when Jessica met Alan, basically he wasn't allowed to be friends with this girl anymore. And at some point, Jessica called her and told her that she was going to allow Alan to be friends with her again. Well, see, that's that's very strange. And see, this this comes back on Alan, too, some. I mean, he gets with this girl who's quite different than him, doesn't seem to be into, you know, shared interest or lifestyles. And he's allowing, he is allowing this person to control him, modify his friend group. All these are red flags. And if this was a female, you know, Alan was the female in the relationship, you would be warning them, hey, these are red flags. You need to be, you shouldn't be with a controlling guy. You shouldn't let him, you know, tell you who you can see and all that, keep you from your family. So it's the same red flags. By 1992, the couple's relationship was in constant turmoil. Alan was sleeping on a cot on campus. I mean, it was November 11th of 1992 when something really just wild happened. And it definitely impacted Jessica. And that's when her biological father, a man named George Callis, called 911 to say he needed help. And when emergency services showed up, they find his second wife dead. Her name was Olivia, and George had murdered her. Oh, my God. And he admitted, I was beating my wife and killed her. Oh, my God. So, damn. He was arrested and eventually convicted of first-degree murder, and he's currently serving a life sentence in prison. Wow. So, this really sent Jessica into, like, a deep depression. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel for her. That's, that's horrible. You not only lost your mother to violence. It was, uh, it was his second wife. Well, oh, her step, her stepmother. Yeah. But well, I mean, yeah. But your family's been impacted by violence, and then your father goes away to. So you lose both of them out of your life. He's in prison. That's just a horrible thing for someone to go to or go through. And I can only imagine how she would take that, use it, you know, keep it as a crutch. Well, at this time, Alan's college career and his professional future seemed to be glowing. And while he was doing incredibly well. Jessica, like I said, she slid into this deep depression and was just full of self-pity. Later, doctors who were treating her would state that her depression manifested into a manipulative fashion for secondary gain. Oh, well, that's not very good at all. And this was proving to be true because married life was all about Jessica. Yeah, it sounds like it's all Jessica all the time. She finally decided to get a GED and then take some college classes at the same university as her husband, of course, because she needed to keep an eye on him. And during this time, she also started telling anyone who'd listen about Alan's physical abuse. He's always yelling, screaming. He's mean-spirited. He's mean to the kids. I mean, Alan was working two jobs. He was a full-time student and still taking care of the kids and supported Jessica's dream of a college education. All while Jessica took a single history class. Wow. She also started going out quite a bit, which I understand. I mean, she's in her early 20s. She's not really been able to experience, you know, the things that you do when you're young. Well, she had a child, her first child young, uh, early on, which is tough. And Alan supported it. I mean, if she wanted to go out at night, he would agree, okay, let, you know, let her go out. He would take care of the kids. And she was really tired of the housewife thing. Staying at home, washing clothes, making food. She was just over it. 
And during her time in class, she raved about having met a new friend. And Alan was pleased. He had hoped this would get Jessica out of the funk she had been in. Alan encouraged the friendship. He even thought it was a great idea when Jessica suggested she take a trip by herself to Washington, D.C. to research a project. And while gone, Alan happened to stumble across some evidence of an affair. Well, yeah, I'm saying it sounds like she's kind of smothery. You know, Alan can't get a moment. So he probably is happy to for her to spread her wings and maybe get some other interest in her life so he can get, you know, a little bit of space. Because being too clingy and all over someone is usually not a good thing. Now, later, Jessica would say the trip to D.C. was so she could have an abortion. But he called the friend from school, the one Jessica was always raving about, and the boy's mother informed Alan that, the guy was in Washington, D.C. So Alan was obviously devastated because he pretty much concluded that his wife was cheating. Oh, my God. This based with the evidence he had already found. And Alan grew up in a really religious household, and he didn't believe in divorce. I mean, he took his vows seriously. He called her at the motel, and she told him she was on her way home. But, of course, she said something to the effect of, this isn't over yet, Alan, as though he had done something wrong. Well, yeah, I mean, always flipping the situation, trying to control the narrative. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. When she got home from the D.C. trip, it was in the early morning hours, you know, late at night, early morning hours, probably like 2, 3 in the morning. And Alan was packing his stuff. He told her he was leaving. And during this time, Jessica rushed to the kitchen to get a knife. She attempted to stab Alan while he was leaving, but missed and hit the door. Oh, my God. And this was the end of their marriage. Alan was done. He sent his father and brother to go pick up the rest of his stuff. And when they arrived, the house looked like a crime scene. Jessica had torn through all of the home's contents, destroying anything belonging to Alan. Yeah, no, see, that's crazy because on, on many levels, and the kids got to live in this house. And they're seeing their mom go around, tear up everything. I mean, that's just nuts. She smashed stuff with hammers. It was broken, torn up. And I mean, some of this was like things from his childhood, you know, like important possessions he had. And at first she played truly sorry for what she had done. But the moment she realized that Alan was gone for good, she flipped the switch into what a lot of people would call psycho mode. Oh, my God. Alan was a peaceful person, so... He often wasn't willing to engage in this drama, which infuriated Jessica even more. The separation kicked off a bitter divorce. Jessica at one point moved out of the house, then claimed to folks she'd had a miscarriage, probably from lifting heavy stuff. Which, this confused her friends because she had told them that she had recently gone to D.C. for an abortion. This girl needs to get some birth control in her life. I mean, honestly, what the hell is she doing? She just needs to be fucking tubal legated. <laughs> yeah, let's go, let's go ahead and clip this off before you overpopulate the world. Oh, my God. She's a good candidate for sterilization. But from the moment Alan left in 1994, Jessica's mission was to make his life as miserable as possible. She railed on him as a father and always in front of their kids. Alan never missed a child support payment from the beginning of the split. And he left, and it wasn't like there was any sort of court-ordered support payment in place. But he just took it upon himself the minute he left to immediately like start paying her money. Yeah, he strikes me as that type of to guy. take care of the kids. Yeah. Jessica would insinuate that 
Alan never paid money to her that the house was cold because he wasn't giving her money for heating. He never paid her. The kids went without while he was out living it up. And eventually Jessica moved in with her mother and stepfather. And all the while, she's telling everyone that Alan never wanted to see his kids, nor did he support them financially. The divorce was finalized in January of 1995. A judge allowed Jessica to retain primary custody and granted Alan visitation. And Alan was okay with this. I mean, he knew working in theater, he would be keeping a very busy schedule and hours that wouldn't be, uh, you know, good for, I guess, trying to child rear. I mean, he's going to be gone in the evenings. He's going to be working a lot. And he knew Jessica was a good mom, but he wanted to be able to see his kids. Well, yeah, who wouldn't? I mean, most, most people want to see their kids no matter what. So from this day forward, Jessica would decide when and if Alan could see the kids. People would later say that Jessica would get the girls to pack a bag, have them go sit on the front porch for hours, knowing good and well there was no scheduled visit, and then would talk shit about what a terrible father Alan was when he didn't show up for the visit. Well, see, that's just... And would tell the girls, like, see, your dad doesn't love you. He didn't even show up for this visit. He's not even coming to pick you up. He made you sit out there all day. That's just, that's cruel. That's a very cruel thing to do to your own children, but she doesn't care. And I think sometimes when you have a split and you have been a stay-at-home parent, man or woman, sometimes the, the stay-at-home parent doesn't, it doesn't register that, hey, things are different now. I might have to work no matter what. It sounds like, you know, her mom would help her anything she needs. I might have to get a job now, even if there is some support coming in. It's not enough. And the kids aren't a meal ticket. So I, I got to support us, myself, the household. And sometimes people just don't seem to get that when people split up. Yeah, I've seen that multiple times. I've seen that up close. Yeah, well, we both have. Oh, my God. <laughs> Alan was a meticulous man, and he kept detailed records of everything. He was incredibly organized. And after the first month, he could see that Jessica was going to be unreasonable. So he started keeping notes, voicemails, financial transactions. I mean, anything he could get his hands on, and he put it in a box called evidence. Well, I think that was a smart move on his part. Alan was working at the historical Alabama theater when he met a woman named Tara Klug. Tara grew up in Clemson, South Carolina. She studied in London while pursuing her BA in art history. She had a minor in mathematics at Hollins College in Roanoke, Virginia. During her four years as an architectural historian for the Historic American Building Survey, she served as a project historian for the Alabama Theater, and that's where she met Alan. Oh, wow. Sounds like somebody who has this same interest. She spent a year as a decorative painter for Evergreen Painting Studios doing paint research, decorative uh, painting techniques, conservation, and gilding on a 1927 movie palace and the Kansas State Capitol. So this is a girl who's got it going on. Yeah, she sounds accomplished. Sounds like she's pursuing her own goals. And uh, sounds like some pretty interesting stuff she's doing. And like Alan, Tara was described by everybody as pretty much the polar opposite of Jessica. Tara was sweet, kind, generous, and self-reliant. No one was surprised to learn that Alan and Tara were together. Her career was soaring, same as Alan's, and Tara was passionate, as was Alan. I mean, they both were really, really passionate about what they were doing in their careers, furthering their education. You know, they really had goals, and they just hit it off. 
But of course, the competition of another woman sent Jessica over the edge. Yeah, and so it's been quite a while at this point, right? I mean, it's just she keeps dragging it out, not letting go, keeping it, you know, all stirred up. It's totally ridiculous attitude. If Alan could find himself a match in Tara, then Jessica needed to go out and find herself a man. So she sets her sights on a guy who works at a comic book store. And she told friends she thought he was going to inherit some money one day because otherwise there wasn't really any reason for her to be with him. Well, that's so romantic. <laughs> now, she moved in with this guy and never even told him that she had two kids that were at home with her mother. This relationship continued longer with Jessica, and she would, like, leave her kids for these extended periods of time while she stayed at this boyfriend's place. And then she told him she was pregnant. Well, that's a very unhealthy way to be. I couldn't imagine carrying, starting a relationship with someone and not telling them about my children. I wouldn't do that. She had an abortion and then about six months later told him she was pregnant again. And he didn't want anything to do with having a baby. This was not something that he wanted. And, you know, he let it be known. So she left him. And in spring of 1997, she gave birth to their baby. And she was pretty quickly in court seeking child support. She got the judge to give her $800 a month. So total, she was getting about $1,200 a month in child support for the three kids. But this guy couldn't pay $800 a month. I mean, Jessica ended up, you know, really kind of fucking this guy over. He ended up in jail and eventually got a judge to reduce the child support to about $463 a month, which he could afford. But Jessica wouldn't let him see his child. And the guy would later say he didn't feel safe seeing his kid because of Jessica's threatening behavior. Yeah, this is like in the 90s, right? Yeah. So this is 90s dudes working at a comic book store, you know, with cool, cool job. And I'm not sure if he owned the store or he just worked there. I mean, he. it seemed that Jessica thought for some reason he had some money. Yeah, well, maybe it's a family-owned store or something to that effect. But still, $800, $800 a month is a lot nowadays. Yeah, it is. I mean, it depends on where, where you work and how much you make. And um, I think uh, they're a little better about matching it to your income nowadays, what you make. But I, I remember stories like this back in the day, people just getting slammed with $800,000. And hell, they couldn't even pay that. And you instantly end up in jail. And uh, yeah, it's just like a vicious cycle that starts once you get in a situation like that. Well, by 1999, Jessica found herself working for the Birmingham Police Department as a clerical secretary. However, this job would not last long as Jessica was fired for being lazy and disobedient. Well, yeah, that usually is not good job skills. She was also terminated for abusing Alan while she was employed there. Like she'd gone to his house, physically assaulted him. The cops were called. So, of course, when her employer finds this out, the police department... Uh, they let her go. And Jessica also felt like she had to keep up with Alan. And whatever he did, she did. Like, he bought a new Acura, so Jessica bought one. I'm down to the same model, color, even though she couldn't afford it. Well, see, that's weird. That doesn't, I mean, I don't even think like that. I don't, but obviously she had to one up, try to one-up him. He's probably, they have a bigger income. Now he's with his new woman. She's, you know, employed as well. So I guess in her mind, it was showing showing him something by getting the same car. But that's really weird. Then Jessica met an officer named Jeff McCord, and pretty quickly the pair was moving in together. 
Jessica liked that Jeff was a cop. It made her feel safe and superior in some way. The custody situation was worsening. Not only did Jessica not allow Alan to see or speak to the kids, but she had essentially turned them against Alan. In 2000, Alan hired an attorney and began pursuing visitation with them. Jessica continued violating the orders. She would fail to show up for court. It was just dragging on. And by this time, a judge was getting annoyed and issued a contempt charge that if she violated the order one more time, she'd have to serve 10 days in jail. So, yeah, she's doing anything possible to keep it the ball in her court in a way, I guess, right? Tara and Alan were scheduled to be married in June of 2000, and Alan was really excited to see his kids. However, when Alan showed up to pick up the girls, which would have been on the 19th of June, he's thinking, okay, I'm going to be able to get the girls. They're going to be able to be at my wedding. We're going to get to spend the summer together. He was pretty surprised when Jessica introduced him to her new husband, Jeff. Oh, yeah. By the way, I went out and got you a new daddy. His name's Jeff. For once, Jessica seemed happy and allowed the girls to go be with Alan for the whole summer. Oh, okay. So Alan's like, this is great. You know, she's she's gotten married. She seems happy. New baby. Like, everything seems like, okay, this may be, this is going to maybe work for once. But this wouldn't last very long. It was during the summer of 2000 that Alan had been allowed to take the girls with him to Maryland, where he had recently moved. He was production manager for the Phoenix Productions of Frederick, Maryland, which is a theater company that does national tours of Broadway musicals. And while they were there, Tara had plans to attend a graduate school in Maryland. So in the beginning of the McCord's marriage, things were going okay as far as custody. But as soon as the kids arrived back in Birmingham, Jessica started in again. She refused Alan um, knowing their address or their phone number. So the minute he dropped the kids off, he lost touch with his children. Oh, that's wrong on so many levels. She missed more court dates and was sentenced to 10 days in jail. Jessica was livid when she found out that this arrest warrant had been issued Alan's attorneys were trying to track down a residence. They tried to find out where the kids were in school, but they weren't having much luck. And of course, when they contacted the Pelham Police Department where Jeff McCord was employed, they didn't get any help. So months went by and Jessica kept dodging arrest. There was even a story in Death Trap, which is the book that I used as a resource today, about the police had shown up at Jessica's mother's house and Jessica pretended to be her sister. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica who? <laughs> Lied to cops, said, I'm the sister, she's gone to Florida, I have no idea where she is. See, she even gets um, enraged when uh, uh, by a court order. You know, how dare even the judge or the judicial system, you know, disagree with me. So that's, that's really, really interesting. By September of 2001, this is a year after the contempt charge, she finally goes to jail for like 10 days. Just go do your 10 days, man. Here's an idea. Don't get in contempt in the first place and, like, you know, stay inside the judge's order on custody. Oh, and she's, like, livid about this. And it's all Alan's fault that she had to go to jail. And during this time, she also has her first child with her new husband, Jeff. They have oh. a baby boy together. And this is their first. 
together after she had several abortions with him, reportedly two to three abortions. Jessica would joke to friends that there wasn't a doctor in Birmingham who would perform an abortion for her because she'd had so many. Like, well, she thought this was funny. Yeah, that's funny. You know, the sad thing is uh, uh, some women can go in, have one procedure for whatever reason, and uh, never be able to get pregnant again. And then you have a girl like, and that's sad. Or you have parents out there who can't have a child. And you have a girl like this who is, um, I, I'm pro-choice. Uh, it's a woman's body. It's her choice. I, I'm all that. But she just over and over and over and over again, using it, pregnant all the time, not obviously doesn't seem to be using any type of birth control and it's just, and can and still getting pregnant. And that just seem it strikes me as sad that some people are devastated or, you know, can't have children and this girl's popping them out left and right and having my God, you've described like eight or nine abortions at least. Oh, she's had multiple and she's not afraid to talk about them. I mean, she's very open about that. Yeah, I've had this many or probably this many abortions like over the course of my life. Like she's, She's not unwilling to discuss it. And I'm pro-choice as well, but I think that it's not something that should be used as birth control. Well, I don't think, I yeah. Mean, I mean, women that are going around, I don't, I'm don't. i not using any birth control, but it's okay. If I get pregnant, I'll just go get an abortion. I don't think many women think like that. I think most people try not to have abortion. You know, no, people aren't really pro-abortion. You know, people say that. I think we're just... It's there. Well, you know. I think the Jessicas of the world are few and far between. They are. But they give the entire procedure a bad rap. Yeah, yes, exactly. Because then it becomes this thing where, oh, well, women are just using it to do that. And it's like, no. I mean, I think there are situations where it's medically necessary or for whatever reason, you know, it's probably the best choice for that person. Right. But when you've had more than one, fucking A. Well, let alone when you pass five and head towards ten. I mean, that's insane. And I Get think on very the fucking pill, bitch. Very. <laughs> that's what I want to say. Very. How do you her. decide? How do you do? You roll like some game dice to decide if you want to keep this one or not. Because she's had what four kids up to this point, or five kids. So she's she. How do you decide? Oh, I've had this abortion last week. <laughs> or last month, but I'm going to keep this one. It's very well, strange. You know, over the years, I've had friends, and I say friends. Um, because honestly, I, I've known women and girlfriends who've done this kind of thing, and it really sort of sours my opinion of them to a point where I pretty much kind of fall off of being friends with people. Because I'm like, mm, if you're like picking and choosing like, oh, well, I can't have this baby, but this guy has a little money, so I'll get knocked up by him because I know he's got some money. I mean, I've known women like that, and it infuriates me. Well, that's not a good... Um good mindset for any child. And I just feel like this anything. is Jessica. I mean, she's a train wreck. It's clear to friends that she's really only with Jeff out of necessity. She's a mother of four, no career, nothing to fall back on. I mean, she's, you know, she's just kind of needs to be with somebody that's going to pay the bills. Yeah. And she doesn't seem to have that go getter grit that it's going to take. Cause it would be very hard to work, have a household with four children if you have family help for childcare, be the only way you could pull it off. Nobody can afford hardly afford childcare. Three or four kids that would be shit a thousand dollars plus a month probably. That's which is insane. So yeah, she's gonna. That's her only option really is to have someone else who has a job bringing money into the house. She gets out of jail. She does her ten days, and then she hires a new attorney. This guy's name is David Dorn. 
And the custody escalation, it just keeps on. David Dorn, Jessica's attorney, encourages her to settle out of court on a custody agreement. I mean, at this point, he's like, it's best to just not even have to go before a judge. Let's just try to hammer something out. Put it down on paper. Let's all come to an agreement. But Jessica's like, no way. She's like, I want to see this to the end. How in the hell can she afford these attorney fees? Because I, I tell you, I dropped four or five grand on a custody real fast light on a custody battle I had with my ex. And I mean, this is years and years later, all kinds of court dates and your attorney's still, you know, dealing with it, filing paperwork. I don't know how, I mean, she's probably spent tens of thousands of dollars at this point. No, I'm like, you spent like five grand and we were in court like one time. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't imagine if we had had to continue to pour money for into years. This. I mean, damn, she spent tens of thousands of dollars in attorney fees. That's just insane. No, I know someone who was in a very similar situation to the one that we were speaking on. And this fella, I mean, I know he probably dropped anywhere from 15 to 20 grand. Wow. And it was almost like intentional. Like his ex kept prolonging custody right. and, and making, you know, everything difficult. Yeah. Moving. And, it, and I think it was to drain him. Fin I mean, it was like almost like a fun game to see how much money he was willing to put into this. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. So when I heard the story, read the story and was like, we need to cover this case. It just hit home because I'm like, I've known people who've gone through very similar situations. And their ex kind of fits the same profile as Jessica. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, there's similar similar personality traits with these types of people. And it's not just women. There's men. I've no, seen, there I've are seen, men as well. I've seen petty men who, who do things like this and maybe in different ways, but it's the same end result. But, yeah, she definitely cannot let it go. It's like a game to her. And if she doesn't want it, even if she got everything she wanted for, from the custody as far as the custody goes, she still doesn't want it to end. Because it's a connection to her ex, it's given her control, and that's a, it's just a game to her. So that brings us to the current situation that's at hand, which is on February 15th, 2002. Alan and Tara meet with David Dorn in his office, and they're hoping to hammer out a mutually beneficial agreement. Alan was told he could pick the girls up at 6 p.m. at Jessica's Myrtlewood Drive home. So he and Tara depart the lawyer's office. They go grab a bite to eat. And it was at this time that Jessica admits to her attorney that she lied during the deposition. Wow. So, hey, by the way, I committed perjury. There had been a, uh, during this meeting, uh, Alan had brought up a time when he'd gone to pick the girls up and Jessica had sent them to Florida to her sister's house so that Alan couldn't get them. And David Dorn, the attorney, was like, well, do you have proof of this? And kind of looked at Alan like, really, you're going to come in here and make this allegation? You don't have any proof to back it up kind of thing? Right. So he is immediately like, okay, this guy. But then the moment that Alan and Tara leave, Jessica's laughing and admits, yeah, I sent my kids to Florida so Alan couldn't get them. What the hell? And so he's like, you just lied? Yeah. Yeah, if she was on deposed record? and yeah, and she said no, I didn't do that. That's that's the same thing as doing it on the witness stand. So David Dorn is perturbed by this, and it was even noted by court recorder, like who was there at this meeting, and he realized Jessica was intentionally alienating Alan from the kids. Yeah, because he just, he just came on board. You know, he wasn't her old lawyer who'd been through and seen her 
Because I'm sure no matter, you know, lawyers, it's your lawyer, they speak for you. You know, in the back of their mind, they think, what the hell? When someone keeps on and on, they don't take their advice when they say, this is what I think you should do. So, yeah, but here's, he's new to the game, and he's getting his first look at this girl is damn off her rocker. Yeah, I mean, her attorney immediately after the meeting is realizing that, like, wait a minute, my client is some shit. Yeah, I need to get this done and get the hell, you know, get away from her. So by 4.30, Jessica leaves her attorney's office and she arrives home where her husband, Jeff McCord, is waiting. So they have about roughly 90 minutes to prepare for Alan and Tara's arrival, the six o'clock pickup time for the girls. So they have devised this plan and the plan involved getting Alan and Tara to use the back door when they arrive so that they can, um, you know, come into this den area which the McCords have decided is the perfect kill room. Oh my God, you just left your lawyer's office. He's basically directed your ex, hey, this is when you can go to her home, which I think is contentious, and as long as it's been going to her home was a, a mistake. It should have been exchange in public, public parking lot, sheriff's department, police station. So yeah, he just sent, he sent them there. This is all on record. I mean, okay. Move on with their ingenious plan. Well, the den is adjacent to the garage. They're going to invite the couple in, have them take a seat in the den, and then pop, pop, pop. Jeff is going to shoot them. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a good deal. Jeff had written a note and placed it on the front door that read, We're having some problems. Please use the back door. Yeah, because, I mean, that's normal. Most people's front door goes out, right? <laughs> I know. I'm like, what, your, your uh, plumbing broke right in the foyer of the house? Yeah, there's don't a... there's step a, in the shit right in the front of the... I mean, I don't know. There's anyway. a main sewer line goes right over the front door. It's weird design, I know. <laughs> I mean, really. Jesus Christ. Jeff thought he was pretty smart, that he was going to use a Beretta, not his standard issue Glock. Probably a good idea to not use your issued uh, service weapon for a murder, sir. Good good thinking. We got it all planned out. Oh, yeah. So as Tara and Alan pull up at 6 p.m., the McCords quickly have a change of plans. Instead of directing the couple to the back door, Jessica meets them in the driveway and tells them to go ahead, just park here in the driveway, which is odd because Alan had always been told to park on the street. And she had never invited Alan inside the house, so he was a bit confused about her friendliness at this pickup. Jessica led them into the house and told Alan that the girls had been preparing a little play for him and Tara. She encouraged them to sit on the couch in the den so that the girls could make a grand entrance and perform this little show they had put together. See, I, I feel bad for Alan because, uh, honestly, I wouldn't want to go in her house, you know, and I wouldn't even want to pull. I'd be like, no, I, I'm, I'm here. Get the girls. Let's go. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to be your friend, honestly. But he's afraid, I'm sure, of pissing Jessica off. He finally figures out maybe this thing is, you know, going to settle down and be done for once. Oh, and finally... And so there you go, you know, they go inside, which I'm sure they weren't comfortable doing. Yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable. I didn't, I'm not even comfortable when you did exchanges, like being in the car during the exchange. No. Like, I'm just sort of like, I don't, I don't want to be any part of this, you know? No. So I can imagine that this was weird and they did feel very uneasy about it. Jessica made small talk about the girls, how one of the daughters was having trouble with math, that they had been sick. And during this time... 
I mean, Alan and Tara both are like, what, you know, it's just such a strange, surreal kind of thing. They'd never really had this sort of relationship with Jessica. So they're both like, what the fuck's going on? So during this time that Jessica is sort of keeping them occupied with small talk, Jeff stands up, he pulls the Beretta from his waistband, and he shoots Tara. What the hell, Jeff? Alan, startled, confused, jumps up and yells, you fuckhead. And Jeff calls him a fuckhead and then returns fire, hitting uh, Alan twice. My God. Jeff shoots him a third time, then he shoots Tara again to ensure that she's dead. It's cold-blooded murder. Jeff then tells Jessica to find the keys so they can pull the rental car back around, you know, to the backyard, and they can load the bodies in the trunk. I just don't understand how they ever thought this plan was going to work. But okay, so they're going to clean the scene up and all that. But these people are, they're in their own little world of reality. It doesn't make sense. Jeff evaluated the scene. He picked up shell casings. He thought there were only six. Actually, there were eight. So he missed two. He didn't even keep into play. Didn't keep up with how many shots he did. Wow. So yeah, good job, dude. Blood was pooling on the floor. There was some splatter on the sofa. They took some blankets, curtains, wrapped up the two bodies. Then they placed them in the trunk. They knew they only had a few hours to dispose of these bodies before people would start looking for the baits. They had, Alan and Tara had family waiting that they were going to visit. They were supposed to be arriving with the girls. Yeah, it sounded like they had a lot of stuff planned, a lot going on, wedding coming up. So, yeah, I'm sure they had a busy schedule. Jessica made a call to Alan's cell phone saying, The girls and I are waiting on you. Where are you? Oh, how clever. The couple decided to dispose of the bodies first, then return to the house and clean up the crime scene. Now, remember, Alan had a rental car. He had flown in from Maryland, and he and Tara had rented a car. So Jeff chose to drive the rental car. Jessica was going to follow behind in the family van. Jessica and Jeff took the dead couple's cell phones and attempted to make it look like the pair had been using their phones. Uh, Jessica was even calling, like, auto body shops, mechanics, towing companies, trying to set the stage that this rental car had torn up and that they were having some kind of car trouble. Oh, yeah. Wow. She's a damn mastermind. Jessica and Jeff stop off to buy some movie tickets. Then they place a call to Jessica's mother setting up their alibi. So the kids were already at her mother's house, which she had told the attorney and Alan that the kids were going to be at her house. Right, so they had them over there so they could kill them. My God. So she asked her parents if they would continue watching the kids so she and Jeff could catch a movie because Alan never showed up. So, of course, her parents are like, you know, yeah, the kids can stay here. Now, she's already left Alan a voicemail claiming that she has the kids with her. So, I mean, she's caught in a lie right there. So about 25 miles from Georgia, they stop at a Subway restaurant and use Alan's credit card to pay for the meal. Then they cut up the card. Jessica made several more phone calls from Alan's cell, trying to set the stage that they're still alive. They're eating. They're using the phone. And finally, around 2 a.m., they pull off of I-20 in a town called Rutledge, Georgia. The couple scrubs down the car interior then they douse it in lighter fluid. They open the trunk, cover the two bodies as well. And this is on Hawkins Academy Road. 
It took them several tries to get the car to light, but finally Jessica manages to get the car to light up. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a lot harder than people realize to set a car on a real fire that's going to burn it up. Well, later Jeff McCord will laugh about how difficult it was and that it was like something in a comedy movie trying to get this car to, to catch fire. And he's like laughing about it. Yeah, that's real funny trying to burn up a car with two dead bodies of the people you just murdered cold blood. Yeah, it's hilarious, dude. So once they light the car on fire, the couple drove back to their home in Alabama, and they were first in line at Home Depot to buy a few cleanup items, including some type of, uh, like, box cutter type of tool that they were planning to remove the carpet from the den with. And they go back home, begin cleaning up this murder scene. So this was February 16th, 2002. This is the Saturday after the murder. Authorities discover the bodies of Taryn Allen in this wooded area in the community of Rutledge. The Bateses had rented the car in Alabama, in Birmingham. They were scheduled to attend this child custody hearing. And then they went missing, according to news reports. But immediately, people who knew Jessica and Allen suspected Jessica's guilt. (laughs) Who wouldn't? I mean, who wouldn't? Anybody that knows anything... About this situation, it's been going on, what, seven years? It's going on for years. She's unstable, seemingly unstable, irrational, hates him. Tell anybody that she knows that she does hate him. A woman who had been Jessica's best friend through high school and into their 20s, and, I mean, they were still friendly, maybe not as close as they had been, Immediately called police and said, I, I need to speak to a detective. <laughs> She's, yeah, because she knows her friend has been talking about this for years. Uh, so quickly, the police investigators are all over Jessica and Jeff. And by February 22nd, so not even a week later, the state was ready to bring capital murder charges against the two. So up until this point, they had been pretty tight-lipped, not offering up any information to investigators. And though Jessica was behind bars awaiting trial after her arrest, she refused to play ball, stating she was innocent and she wanted her day in court. Oh, yeah, of course she wants to make a big scene. I want a big spectacle. I want to be at the center of it. The DA's office really kind of targeted Jeff. They were hoping that maybe if they leaned on him, it might force him, and being a former cop, to make a deal of some kind. But Jessica, nope. She was not going to play ball. She was pregnant again. Oh, my God. And due in September, she wrote a 10-page letter to the judge demanding that she be released on bond for the birth of her child. I've and got, this letter is insane. I've got abortions to get. She is blaming everyone in this 10-page manifesto <laughs> about her situation. The judge read it and denied the bond, but this wouldn't be the first letter. She wrote several more, and she even got her relatives in on this like letter-writing campaign to the judge demanding that she get bond, that she get a speedy trial. See, that's another thing you see with people that are like this sometimes, and I think it helps them become like this. Their family's still supporting them in ways when, and when it's obvious that that person is the problem, and I know it's your family member, and it's tough sometimes, but... I'm I'm different. Tough love. I grew up in a different way. Just because you're my family or whatever doesn't mean you get to be crazy and treat people all you know like shit. You don't get to be shitty to me. There's consequences to your action, and I think these people would do. It would benefit them if their family would say, "Hey, shake them by the shoulder and say, what the hell are you doing?'" But no, they're going to write letters to a judge too when they had to know that she likely is 
the one who did this. Same for me. I mean, I grew up, I do not have people in my life who are going to enable me. No. My parents are definitely the ones that would be like, you fucked up. See ya. Yeah. You made your bed <laughs> lie in it. Yeah. I mean, they're like, you know, my mom's favorite thing when I was growing up was always take your medicine. You know, if you do something, you got to face the music. It's better to face it head on and. Well, that's true. Take your medicine and it'll be over soon. That was like her advice. And so, yeah, Jessica's family, I mean, we'll get into that, but they continue to enable her throughout the trial and even once she's done with all that. Oh, my God. So it's a year later, February of 2003, that Jessica's trial begins now, a key witness for the prosecutors was Frank Head, who was Allen's longtime attorney, and he had been dealing with this custody case for years. And he told the jurors that the motive was in all the paperwork, from Jessica's refusal to come to an agreement, denying Allen visits, these constant games she played, those were the reasons why she'd killed Allen and Tara. Frank had pointed out the inconsistencies in Jessica's stories, how often she lied, even when she was being disposed for court, and that no one could actually believe anything she said. Even the girl's dance teacher, who didn't have a dog in the fight, testified about Jessica's animosity toward Alan and how Jessica had told her that if Alan ever tried to get the girls, he'd regret it. There you go, telling people they barely know all their secrets, all their business. Each state witness painted a picture of Jessica as a woman who believed she didn't have to play by the rules. And another bit of bad news for Jessica... She thought she was being really slick using Alan and Tara's cell phones to make calls, but she didn't realize that the cell phone towers ping and record every time they're used. So the towers basically gave investigators a map of the arrival at Jessica's, the murder, to dumping the body on Hawkins Academy Road. Well, the, yeah, all she did was leave a, a digital footprint or fingerprint of the i mean i bet you could look on a map and it's got the lines the little wiggly lines all the way around the whole trip yeah it really does but jessica being the kind of woman who always had to have the last word decided she wanted to take the stand in her defense her entire testimony was painting alan as the bad guy making up excuses on how everything was alan's fault it was his fault she had missed custody hearings. It was his fault that the custody never got worked out. And despite mountains of documentation contradicting her testimony, Jessica just had an excuse or answer to every question. Most of them were lies, and she did it all with a straight face, so much that later people would talk about how it seemed that Jessica actually had convinced herself that these lies were true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she could probably pass a polygraph. And given her version, because she totally believes her own bullshit. She danced around questions of why her kids were with her mother on the evening that Alan was supposed to pick them up. Never actually addressing it, but always having some reason about, well, I figured if he was really going to get the kids, then he could go pick them up at my mom's house. You know, just going on and on. Yeah, he should have went to your mom's house and not your freaking house. So by February 15th, jurors only took about two and a half hours to deliberate, and she was guilty. Well, yeah, that, that sounds like a, a jury that um, knew before they went into deliberation, they all felt that she was guilty, and they take a little bit of time to get some food, <laughs> not come straight back. That's pretty quick deliberation. During sentencing, Jessica admitted that the eldest of the two girls didn't actually belong to Alan. 
What the hell? So she couldn't understand why he even wanted this little girl. And that Alan had been raising a child that didn't even belong to him. I wonder if Alan was aware of that. I don't guess we know that information. Jeff McCord immediately decided to make a deal when he realized that things were not going well for Jessica. He was going to sit down and confess what had happened before going to trial. Now, Jeff admitted details like Jessica had pulled her girls out of the school system so she could homeschool them for the sole purpose of hiding the kids from Alan. What the hell? And Jeff said he went along with all of these things that Jessica wanted because she was his wife and he believed it was his duty to do so. Yeah. And so how do you even start that conversation? How do you, do you have that conversation over eggs and coffee? Hey, by the way, I think I want to kill my ex and will you murder them for me? Well, let's be honest. I don't think Jeff is the brightest crayon in the box. Yeah, I know, but... He just seems a little dumb and stupid and easily manipulated by Jessica. And she's such a domineering woman. Yeah, I just... Him being a cop, even with basic law enforcement knowledge, I don't understand how he thought this this plan was ever going to work. Even even someone who's not that sharp, I think, would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I mean, you got to be, I don't get it. It happens over and over, and somewhere right now, someone's being manipulated into, like, a murder plot. But I just don't get it, because I would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? No, well, I don't want to do that. Well, again, I think they're not the brightest people in the world. I think she's incredibly domineering and manipulative, and I think Jeff's a little stupid, And I think on top of that, they're so insulated in this bubble they've created. I guess in their chaos and lies that this makes sense. As you would say in the lizard part of their brain, this is this makes sense to them. I guess you're right. Wow. It's so sad. Hey, you can't rationalize crazy. okay? you can't. And it's very sad that these two innocent people were killed. I mean, no reason. No one was in danger. No one was protecting themselves or anything like that. It was just cold-blooded murder and someone's twisted mind thinking that, you know, this is the only way this can play out. After all that time, it comes when the lawyers are like, look, you know, the judges or the courts are done with it. Lawyers are done with it. We have to come to an agreement. So she'd rather do this than just let it be over and let it go. And that's insane. That's very insane to me. During this confession, Jeff admitted that he had followed Jessica's lead in the murders and that it wasn't until she started to kind of lose it that he took over with the plans. Uh, During this confession, Jeff seemed cold and calculated, investigators noted. Didn't seem particularly remorseful or sorry for what he had done. Shortly before Jeff pleaded guilty in April of 2003, Jessica was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And Jessica knew that Jeff had cut himself a deal and, of course, turned on him. Yeah. Jeff McCord, the gunman in the murders of Alan and Tara Bates, was also found guilty and he received life in prison but will be eligible for parole after serving only 25 years. He was denied parole in 2017 and his next hearing is scheduled for 2022. Wow, I hope they don't let him out then. He doesn't need to be out. I don't think he deserves to be out. Now, we were talking a bit about Jessica's family just being enablers. Her mother um, was also, uh, you know, part of this hearing, this testimony, lied, was charged with perjury. Ah, okay. And and would never, like, admit her role in any of this. You know, swore Jessica was innocent. 
lied on stand and ended up serving some time for perjury. Oh, okay. So it's some of this traits of Jessica could, or learned behaviors. I mean, honestly, she came up around someone who's willing to do similar things. During the summer of 2004, the Bates and the Klug family filed a $150 million wrongful death lawsuit against Jeff and Jessica McCord. So there's no way they could ever profit from any books or movies or anything like that. Well, that's good. I, I think that they should never profit a dime off that. Jessica, man, she is a textbook sociopath hitting about 90% of the traits, according to doctors and those who have examined her. Oh, she's a full-blown sociopath. I think that's obvious with her actions over all this time. And the fact she just could not let it go. She would rather escalate it. Cold-blooded murder. Doesn't care what it did to her. Her kids were destroyed by this. Both parents gone. She's in jail. Their dad's dead. She doesn't care. The two girls, and then she's got these other three kids. So there's five kids without parents, essentially. All these kids, poor kids. Caught up in the middle of this. Ah, it's so sad. Well, my main resource today was a book by M. William Phelps called Death Trap. Very good book on the case. Really goes into detail if you would like to learn more about um, the story we've just told you. There's also an episode of Snapped on Jessica McCord. Oh, I like Snapped. But that has been episode 93. So rate and review us. Give us a five star. Hit subscribe on our podcast. And tell a friend about Mountain Murders. Yeah, those are some easy ways to help support the show. Keeps us visible on charts. And it really, really helps us out a lot. Just takes a minute to do it. But if you do any of those things, we'd appreciate it. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Thanks for tuning in. (laughs) Bye.